You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life. You know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The locals at Ye Old Hob Pub were going to have none of this nonsense. The night was winding down, last call was at hand, and the time was ripe for a scuffle. There had been a series of race riots in Detroit, Michigan. And for days, the white American troops stationed in Bamber Bridge, England, had been throwing a fit. Many of them felt helpless, and more felt angry. To ease their furied hearts, they decided they wanted a color ban on all local pubs, effectively making them white-only establishments. No black soldiers would be allowed in. The Brits were furious. How dare these arrogant nitwits show up and try to enforce Jim Crow in their village? In reaction, three pubs, including Ye Old Hob, hung Black Troops Only signs. The white servicemen found this unamusing. A black private by the name of Eugene Nunn was just about ready to head home from the pub when two white soldiers came in. They puffed up their chests and tried to detain him for what they claimed was a uniform offense. The soldiers and barflies began to argue, and Eugene was caught in the middle. A staff sergeant on hand managed to defuse the situation and sent the offending troops packing. That is, until someone lobbed a beer at their backs like a grenade. For the soggy troops, that was the last straw. They went back to the base and lay in wait. As the black soldiers made their way home, they were ambushed. A fight broke out in the road and a shot was fired. A private was struck and was soon dead. This was anything but friendly fire. Those injured in the melee made their way back to base, and word spread quickly. Panic rose, and rumors snowballed. Soon, several jeeps packed with white soldiers arrived at the Black Battalion's camp, including one improvised armored car with a large machine gun. Black soldiers fled, dodging more assailants en route to the village. Once there, they warned the locals to stay inside. It was good that they heeded that call. Soon, a firefight broke out wounding seven more soldiers and killing one. 
Shots popped in the darkness until calm broke around 4 a.m. Top Brass immediately ordered an investigation. The black soldiers were accused of mutiny and two trials were conducted. Four soldiers involved in the initial scuffle were dishonorably discharged and sentenced to hard labor, including Eugene. The second trial tried 34 more soldiers for mutiny. The locals, though, came to their defense. They were horrified at the events that had taken place on their home turf and made it clear where the fault lay. Upon appeal, most of the sentences were reduced or forgiven entirely. The newspapers back in the States managed to quiet the story. It wasn't fully recalled and documented until the 1980s when bullet holes were found in the woods surrounding the village. The press, at its best, shines a light on the dark corners of our world. But it can also serve as a tool to manipulate narratives in the service of domineering powers. It's a story that we know all too well, and one that has long had devastating consequences. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. A place named Sleepy Lagoon, as bucolic as it sounds, doesn't seem like it should have been the scene of a violent murder. But in the early morning hours of August 2nd of 1942, such a paradox wasn't out of the question. 22-year-old Jose Gallardo Diaz had a strange feeling when he set out the night before, and even told his mother so, but that didn't stop him from going to the party. He danced, he drank, he reveled with friends until the dawn light began to streak across the sky. And as the band packed up and the crowd began to thin, Jose began walking home. But he would never make it. From the road came an ambush, a vicious attack that left him beaten, stabbed, and nearly dead near the Sleepy Lagoon Reservoir. Jose was soon found unconscious by a neighbor, a halo of blood around his head. A small crowd gathered and watched as an ambulance sped him away. Jose died at the hospital, never having regained consciousness, and never having told the truth of what happened that early morning. The violence of Diaz's death was barely mentioned in police reports or the media. The press, it seemed, wasn't concerned about a dead brown boy. Unfortunately, this attitude was pretty common in California back then. The state had originally been Mexican territory, but the United States officially acquired California, along with the land that would later contribute to six other states, as a concession to end the United States' insurgents into Mexico. Mexico ceded over half of itself to America where, suddenly, people were expected to fall in line with the dominating Anglo culture. White Americans were hungry for the rich farmland, and were quite perturbed to find it already occupied. In response, the U.S. government rounded up and deported massive numbers of residents, including their American-born spouses and children. By the 1930s, this had become common practice. Even so, Mexican citizens continued to flee the violence of their country's revolution. The Diaz family was among them. The family settled on the east side of Los Angeles. They took up work as farm laborers, spending their precious downtime making a new life under the oppressive watch of the American powers that be. They threw birthday parties, hosted barbecues, made music, and created new families in a place where immigrants had long been teased with the promise of the American dream. 
The children from these families faced the harsh realities of being born poor and Mexican in Los Angeles. They were turned away from restaurants. They were harassed by police. This was the time of the Jim Crow South, and it was hard not to notice how it echoed and morphed across Los Angeles. But young people are resilient, and a counterculture was born. They took over swimming holes, threw dances, and screened films. They were proud of doing their own thing, and the way they dressed naturally became an extension of that. Style is a language, a statement. And when deployed effectively, style often ends in an exclamation point. At that time, black jazz musicians were the arbiters of taste. Their uniform was the zoot suit, made popular in the dance halls of Harlem, Detroit, and Chicago. Zoot suits were loud and proud, with mountainous shoulder pads, sprawling lapels, and billowing pants. The flowing trouser legs were strategically tapered at the ankles, preventing jitterbugging couples from getting tripped up. They were a flashy choice that begged onlookers to take notice of the person behind the buttons. And one of the places you could see these suits in all their glory, pressed, tailored, and primed for the night, were the dance halls of Los Angeles' east side. One of the favorite moves was a pachuco hop. Soon, as you might imagine, zoot suits became demonized for what they represented. Fun, freedom, black and Mexican pride, defiance of social roles. They became something to be on the lookout for especially when zoot suits were seen traveling together about town. The word pachucos came to represent these young, zoot-suited Mexican-American men. And there were pachucas, too, Mexican-American women who wore zoot suits. And in the wider cultural lexicon, these words became interchangeable with thug or juvenile delinquent. The press lamented that these young people failed to conform to American society. Newspapers went on to claim that there were rival Pachuco gangs constantly fighting on the east side, and that it was these gangs who were responsible for Jose Diaz's death. The very articles condemning violence on the east side also demanded actions against the zoot suitors. The police would go on to arrest some 600 young Mexican-American men and women on the pretense of investigating Jose's murder. The press responded by hailing the police as heroes. Those arrested were put through brutal interrogation, squeezing out coerced confessions. Finally, the police announced that they'd found those responsible for Jose's death. A group of young people from off 38th Street, sometimes called the 38th Street Gang. But for everything they'd gone through, their trial was worse. The jury was packed with white men and women. The judge allowed the chief of the Foreign Relations Bureau of the L.A. Sheriff's Office to testify as an expert witness. He claimed that Mexicans, as a community, were more bloodthirsty than other Americans and had a biological disposition for killing handed down by their, and I quote, Aztec ancestors. The trial lasted for 13 weeks. During this time, the judge didn't allow the defendants the courtesy of a change of clothes nor haircuts. They weren't allowed to speak to their lawyers. Of the 17 young men charged, 12 were declared guilty of murdering Diaz. The five others were convicted of assault. After the conviction, activists sprung into action. They formed the Sleepy Lagoon Defense Committee to try to exonerate the teenagers. This had gone on long enough. This miscarriage of justice was the last straw. The city was priming itself for more violence. 
takes only a few bombs to change the course of a nation. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, life would never be the same. Thousands of troops arrived in Los Angeles, young, green, and committed to fighting a war the country had been reluctant to enter. This would be their launching point, a place to live, train, and wait for their marching orders. For those they left behind, the specter of European and Pacific theaters loomed large. Foreign correspondents filed. Victory gardens sprouted. American homes and businesses rationed. And fashion certainly wasn't spared. In 1942, the War Production Board began to regulate the manufacturing of men's suits. They wanted to scale back fabric use. They created what Esquire magazine called Streamlined Suits by Uncle Sam. It was yet another way to wear patriotism on your sleeve. Slim was in. However, the demand for zoot suits didn't decline. Bootleg tailors popped up. The defiance inherent in the style sharpened to a fine point. Young people continued to snap them up and flaunt the ones they already owned. The refusal to give up the zoot suit infuriated many red-blooded, white-skinned Americans. But this fury was nothing compared to what the newly enlisted soldiers felt when they arrived in the city. As 50,000 new military men on leave poured into L.A. every week, they often broke the long-standing, invisible barriers between white L.A. residents and everyone else. This often involved harassment of all flavors and disruption of local communities. The Mexican-American community had been forced into segregation, and they weren't about to allow these white servicemen to invade the only places they could freely spend time. Almost every Mexican-American in the L.A. area had family and friends who had enlisted. The two groups shared a common enemy abroad, but at home, they were pitted against one another. By May of 1943, tension in the Venice area had been mounting for months. Around sunset one Sunday, a police sergeant working security at a local ballroom overheard a group of high school boys talking about going to confront the zoot suitors. Some sailors standing nearby egged them on. They had heard a rumor that a sailor had been stabbed near Lick Pier. They didn't know by whom, necessarily, but assumptions were made. The zoot suitors were a convenient target. The sergeant stepped in and urged the group to leave things to the police. He insisted that this was all a rumor. But at this point, his words didn't matter. Blood was boiling. Common sense dissipated. This throbbing mob didn't care. More people were joining by the minute. Nearby, a dance was ending. A crush of Mexican-American teenagers started to leave the ballroom, only to see a crowd of nearly 500 sailors and civilians being held off by one lonely sergeant. It didn't look good. The teenagers saw a dangerous tidal wave of bodies and began to run. The mob made chase. Two more policemen arrived, hardly enough to dissuade a vengeful mob, and found a brawl. They were pulled into the seething undertow and beaten themselves. There was no match for the bloodlust. This went on for hours. It spilled and sprawled until 2 a.m., when Harbor Patrol and the LAPD arrived and finally managed to scatter the rioters. It's hard to imagine what took so long. But then again, maybe it isn't. By daybreak, the casualties showed themselves. A number of Mexican-American teens were badly beaten, and scores had been jailed for their own protection. 
This riot and the crowd control measures set a dangerous precedent. It was clear that the police were prioritizing the rights of the invading soldiers over the local residents, a philosophy that would prove to have catastrophic results. Al Waxman, the editor of a small Jewish newspaper, was losing sleep. He had been watching all of this unfold against the backdrop of the City of Angels, and what he saw confounded him. In his office, he gathered some of the young men who had been attacked. He wanted to ask them questions. Why this? Why now? He begged them to forget their differences with the military. The young men responded with questions of their own. And with that, Al sobered up. Isn't it a free country, they asked? Why can't we wear whatever kinds of clothes we like? And why did we have to make the sailors happy? The attacks were gaining momentum, and the scenes on the street were harrowing. Al was part of the media machine that worked to engineer and script these riots, using racially charged headlines and inflammatory news reports to incite further violence. The Los Angeles Times had just reported, Fresh in the memory of Los Angeles is last year's surge of gang violence that made the zoot suit a badge of delinquency. Public indignation seethed as warfare among the organized hands of marauders, prowling the streets at night, brought a wave of assaults, and finally, murders. Baked into these articles was a subtext. The general public was being called to vigilance, which was felt by many as a call to action. But Al was trying so hard, from his small office at this small paper, to turn the tide. Al and the young men went over the details of the past few days, and they went something like this. On the night of May 31st of 1943, as the early summer's warmth melted into twilight, a dozen soldiers had been afoot. They were out carousing, as they often did when the day's work was done. At some point, they spied a group of young Mexican-American women across the street and decided to pay them pleasantries. But while most of the group crossed to the women, Seaman second class Joe Dacey Coleman and a friend stayed behind. It was then that a group of zoot suitors rounded the corner and headed in their direction. And as they crossed paths, Coleman reached out, grabbed one of their arms, and yanked. In a flash, something, someone, had struck the back of Coleman's head and knocked him unconscious. The other servicemen ran back across the street and the two groups began to scrap. The military men, badly beaten, retreated and began to plot their next attack. The next evening, around 6 p.m., around 16 sailors got off a bus on Sunset Boulevard and began to walk north towards the U.S. Naval Reserve Armory. Here, they came across a group in zoot suits who yelled at the troops and made rude gestures. The sailors decided to do something about it. Soon, a group of about 50 sailors, armed with crude homespun clubs, left the base and began marching toward downtown L.A. They planned to strip the zoot suits off all the young men they found wearing them, and club anyone who resisted. They found their first targets at the Carmen Theater, a spot known as a local Mexican-American hangout. The mob burst in and flipped on the lights, stalking up the aisles looking for zoot suitors. And there they found them. The boys who didn't run were dragged from the theater. Most were only 12 or 13 years old. They were summarily stripped and beaten, 
their suits piled high and lit a flame on the sidewalk. Then the mob moved on. A short distance away at the Alpine Street School, 25 young men, some dressed in zoot suits, were just leaving a meeting. Spirits were high, but the mood quickly soured. They had just missed the sailors and soon came upon the bloody, smoldering aftermath of the Carmen Theater attack. Word quickly spread about what had happened. Around 9 p.m., the armory had been informed that servicemen were causing trouble, but nothing was done. Around 11, when the sailors' leave expired, they were rounded up by the police. They were taken to the central police station and held until a superior officer sprung them a few hours later. No charges were filed. The following night began like the previous one. Around 9 p.m., word reached the armory that zoot suitors had kidnapped a group of sailors and were holding them hostage on Main Street. This was false, completely made up. But it was enough to entice another roving mob of servicemen to rally. When they didn't find anyone there, the leaders of the mob decided to take the fight to the zoot suitors. They called the Yellow Cab Company and explained what they wanted. The company happily obliged, and a caravan of taxis appeared. The servicemen invaded the nearest Mexican-American businesses. The lieutenant on watch for the night, Carl T. Cobbs, received phone calls from concerned onlookers. But though the calls continued to roll in, Carl ignored them. Finally, he sent four men down to check out the situation. Allegedly, they couldn't find anything amiss. L.A. Shore Patrol apparently had better luck and arrested 26 offending sailors. Carl continued to ignore phone calls throughout the night. Rumors spread about zoot-suited gangs rather than gangs of violent roaming sailors. Soon, other military men stationed around L.A. headed in to pick up where the armory soldiers had left off. The third night brought further violence, some of the worst of it. Scores of servicemen began marching through the streets of downtown L.A., accosting everyone in a zoot suit, and they didn't draw the line there. When a group of Mexican and Mexican-American musicians left a local record studio, they were attacked by a gang of sailors. Not one had been wearing a zoot suit. That night, the police responded. The LAPD called in every available officer for riot detail. But instead of dealing with the sailors, the police arrested the injured civilians, allegedly for their own protection. Leaders of the Mexican-American community begged local and state officials to do something. The Council for Latin American Youth even sent a telegram to President Franklin D. Roosevelt, begging him to intervene, but they got no response. As dawn came, the newspapers continued to revel. Editors ran headlines claiming that zoot suitors were ready to kill every cop they saw. Two papers reported that 700 grotesquely clad hoodlums roam L.A. bent on the common purpose of engaging in battle with servicemen. The papers planted details of the purportedly planned attacks, giving times and coordinates to readers. As a result, thousands of other servicemen were given the chance to make plans, rally, and show up. Back in Waxman's office, news of more rioting servicemen reached Al and his company. He would later describe a terrible change that came over the young men, who looked at each other in total exhaustion as they began making plans to rescue their friends. 
Al followed the boys down to the scene at Main Street. He saw servicemen beating and kicking people who could barely fight back. He watched police arrive on the scene and begin arresting more Mexican-Americans. He witnessed piles of zoot suits being burned and boys stripped naked and beaten. When one young man asked why he was being arrested, a policeman savagely clubbed him with a nightstick. He collapsed unconscious and was subsequently booted in the face. His mother, clutching an infant in her arms, rushed up to the police and begged the officers not to arrest her son. In response, the police officer turned around and hit her across the face with his nightstick. Rushing back to the east side, Al Waxman found a second mob of rioters, stopping streetcars and dragging off anyone who was black or brown. The rioters crashed through bars and shops looking for pachucos. And through it all, Al saw the police silently stand by, watching the mob. Finally, at 11.30 that night, the mob began to break up, and police moved in to arrest the remaining Mexican-Americans. Morning came, and people on both sides retreated. Though tensions continued to sporadically flare, that night had been the worst of it. Instead of taking action on the servicemen, the Los Angeles City Council did something else. They passed a resolution banning zoot suits, declaring them to be a public nuisance. Local and state investigations began almost immediately. The FBI even came to town, though this was to rule out the involvement of foreign agents. Shockingly, no one was killed in the week-long riots. But ten days after the conclusion of the violence in L.A., massive race riots against black people exploded in Detroit. There, the riots were even more violent. In the end, 23 people were killed. 530 injured, and 1,300 arrested. Similar riots would soon break out in Philadelphia and Chicago as well. A citizens' committee was appointed by the California governor to investigate the cause of these collective riots and recommend how to prevent them in the future. The committee's report found that, quote, in undertaking to deal with the cause of these outbreaks, the existence of race prejudice cannot be ignored. The Sleepy Lagoon convictions, which had drummed up fears of the Pachuco gangs, were re-examined in the wake of those few days in June. In October of 1944, the State Court of Appeals unanimously decided the evidence in the case hadn't been sufficient and reversed the guilty verdict. All 12 defendants' convictions were exonerated, and the appeals court went so far as to criticize the clear bias of the judge in the original trial. It would take the country a long time to realize that it wasn't these particular clothes, nor the people who wore them, that were to blame for this violence. Clothes make the man, they say, but they can also be his or her undoing. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh 
refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her. Each in women's petite and plus sizes. And Stafford and Mutual Weave for him. Style and comfort for all, even big and tall. Plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Jackie flexed his hands, grabbed his bat, and strode to the plate. But he couldn't get his mind off of the letters. The stacks and stacks of them. They had been arriving at his house for weeks now. Envelopes and telegrams postmarked from all over the country. Their tone was a departure from his usual fan mail. Instead, fans, politicians, and reporters all had something to say. And their words troubled him. Jackie Robinson put both hands on his bat and locked eyes with the pitcher. It was opening day of 1949, and the Brooklyn Dodgers were playing the New York Giants. Jackie had fought his way here, making waves in the Jim Crow world. He was the first black person to play in the major leagues, breaking the color line that had existed since the creation of professional baseball. In doing so, he had become a hero, but he had also become a target. In the years following World War II, America went through some serious growing pains, largely centered on ideas about what was and wasn't American. And since few things were considered to be more American than a baseball uniform, all eyes were on Jackie. Some questioned whether he deserved to wear it, not only because of his skin color, but because of his personal politics. Robinson's boss, Branch Rickey, had received a call from a man named Alvin Stokes, an investigator for the House Un-American Activities Committee. He wanted a word with Robinson. Communism was the threat du jour, and Americans felt it imperative that they take a stand on the home front. The House Un-American Activities Committee was charged with investigating alleged disloyalty and subversive activities on the part of private citizens, public employees, and those organizations suspected of having fascist or communist ties. By the late 1940s, being called to testify before the committee could destroy someone's life. Stokes was a black man himself, and all too familiar with navigating a country that was built by his ancestors, but never meant for him. He knew that it was only a matter of time before the committee's full attention shifted to the black community, especially with the recent pushes for an end to segregation. He believed that it was important for black celebrities to preemptively testify before the committee in order to remain in good standing. Stokes convinced Ricky that Robinson going to testify as a friendly witness would benefit not only him personally, but his team as well. The risk was this. If word got out that the Dodgers were refusing to cooperate, not only would the organization be in trouble, but the great experiment of integrating baseball would be doomed. 
Jackie's career might be over just as it was getting started. And at that very moment, as Jackie was up to bat, calculating his next move, both the angle of his swing and whether to cooperate, another ball was in play. Across the ocean in Paris, a speech was happening that would weigh heavily on what happened next. Black singer and civil rights activist Paul Robeson was giving a speech. He himself was a phenomenal athlete, a brilliant thinker, an alum of Columbia Law School, and a talented entertainer. He was extremely popular, but his outspokenness on behalf of Black people had made him a lot of enemies. The House Un-American Activities Committee had long been waiting for an excuse to drag him in to testify. Paul told the crowd that Americans would hesitate to go to war on behalf of a country that treated them so badly. In that cultural moment, the statement was tantamount to treason. Paul and Jackie knew each other and had been facing similar battles trying to break into white establishments. However, Paul was outspoken in his liberal beliefs. Some of his comments troubled Jackie, who tended towards conservatism. However, he was also troubled by the idea that he could be pitted against and used to bring down a fellow reformer. Jackie struggled to decide whether or not he should testify. He hadn't been subpoenaed, but it would look very bad if he didn't appear voluntarily. The pressure mounted, and more letters came. Jackie made his decision. On the morning of July 18th of 1949, Jackie Robinson arrived in Washington, D.C. to testify. Dressed in a sharp, tan, slim-tailored suit, Jackie made a striking figure as he cut through popping flashbulbs and cheering crowds to the courtroom. And there, he stood behind the heavy wooden table and raised his right hand to take the oath. If Robinson was nervous, he didn't show it. He delivered his testimony calmly and with little flair, trying very hard not to be pulled into a feud with Paul. He used his time before the committee and the press wisely. Jackie told the court that though he was an expert at living as a black person in America, quote, with 30 years experience at it, it was silly to believe that any one man could speak for 15 million people. He went on to use the spotlight to contest racism and advocate for integration. He made it clear that black people's protests for social justice didn't come from a communist conspiracy, but from their faith in the democratic system. When Robinson finished his testimony, the room erupted with applause. It might have felt like a small victory, but the moment didn't last long. Paul would go on to be blacklisted from mainstream theaters and concert venues. His records were banned from stores. The FBI confiscated his passport. Effectively, he was erased from public life. Jackie would later look back on the decision with a lot of personal regret, but he did the best he could in that moment with what information he had available. He would continue on for years to wear that baseball uniform, a symbol of hope, a symbol of progress, and for him and so many black children everywhere, a symbol of resistance. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Robin Miniter, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimAndMild.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Since every minute counts when you're a new parent, who wants to waste time washing bottles? Transform this daily chore with the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro, the first machine that automatically washes, sterilizes, and dries bottles, pump parts, and sippy cups at the push of a button. Its 20 spray jets clean everything 100%. Plus, it sterilizes with steam, then dries with germ-free air. Don't waste time on tedious handwashing. Let the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro do it for you. Shop now at babybretza.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next-day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.